Go ahead and take your binders. We're going to review our disciplines like we always do before Jacob comes up. All right. Proverbs 4.23 is our theme verse for Wellspring. And it says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. So I'm obviously not going to belabor um, this point or this verse since Jacob's teaching on it today. But I will just, um, by way of reminder, um, point out that this proverb is instruction from a father to a son. It's specifically from a father who's concerned that his son walk in the ways of God. Um, and he desires that his son makes a top priority of guarding and taking care of his inner person because the rest of life flows out from who we are, what we are in our inner person. All right, the purpose of Wellspring. The purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel transformed lives thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So I noticed when I was rereading these um, disciplines and purposes this week that there's five goals actually listed in this purpose statement. So the first two goals are to equip and encourage, and it's um, to equip and encourage all of us here in this room for a specific action. And that specific action is the third goal of Wellspring, and that's that each of us would be shepherding our hearts toward Jesus with his word. And then that third goal results in two other goals, the fourth and fifth goals, which is living a gospel transformed life. And then finally strengthening this church, Grace Bible Church, in its gospel purposes. So I wanted to take a little time to talk about what it means to live a gospel transformed life. And I was wondering if you guys can off the top of your head, you don't have to say them, Think of a passage in the Bible that talks about a believer's transformation. So if you're like me, you probably thought of Romans 12, verse 2. Um, you can go ahead and turn there because we're actually going to look at that one. Another verse that talks about transformation is 2 Corinthians 3, 18. It says that we are being transformed into the same glory that we see in Scripture when we're reading it, um, which is the glory of the Lord. Or Philippians 3:21. Um, this says, Jesus will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body. That's a great transformation to anticipate and think about. So let's look at Romans 12, 2. I was really encouraged by um, this verse a couple weeks ago. I was in a Semwives class, which is it's a little class for all the seminary wives. Um, and the teacher in it mentioned... Romans 12, 2, um, when she was talking about how to pursue godliness. Um, I'll just read it first, and I'll talk about it. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the teacher, um, that what she was saying that I was so encouraged by, was she was making the point that this be transformed is passive. It's something that's being done to us, something that's done um, to us as individuals. Um, it's God who is the one that transforms us. It's not something that we can do, but there is something, um, there's a means that God uses in order to transform us. The other part that's interesting is even though it's passive, it's something that's supposed to be done to us, it's a command. We are commanded to passively be transformed. 
So um, you could probably see there in the verse the means that God uses to transform us, and it, that is the renewing of our minds. So that is something that we can do. We can put ourselves in the path of being transformed by renewing our minds with the Word of God. So we can pursue um, renewing our minds so that we can be transformed from our natural self to reflecting better and to a greater degree the image of God. Um, putting God's word in our heart, meditating on his truth um, will all help us as we renew our minds and then God transforms us. Um, go ahead and turn to Luke 19. And as, I'm, as you're turning there, I will read to you our first discipline, discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular, the gospel. So in Luke 19, at the very end of the chapter, um, it records how Jesus was going into Jerusalem. He's riding on the back of a donkey and he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Um, and he is being worshiped and praised by his disciples and a crowd of followers. And go ahead and read with me, starting in verse 37. It says, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So what does this passage have to do with discipline one? Well, the phrase describing the crowd just stood out to me as what I want to be doing in my own life. And I'm sure it's what each of you want to be doing in your lives. And that is this. It says the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. So it's like these disciples and the people in the crowd had been going along with Jesus. They were listening to him. They were watching him. Um, and now they can't hold in their admiration or their amazement or their love for him any longer. They're speaking loudly and they're declaring Jesus' greatness and worth to everyone else on their way into Jerusalem. They had witnessed Jesus' great power and his teaching. And what are some of those events that they had recently witnessed? You can just look back a few pages and you'll see that they saw Zacchaeus, the tax collector, repent and, be, and believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They saw blind Bartimaeus receive physical sight. They saw a rich man refuse to give up wealth in order to gain eternal life. They had heard teaching on prayer, teaching on humility, the last being first, the first being last. They saw 10 lepers healed from their leprosy. They saw Jesus heal two people on the Sabbath. And they had seen Jesus cast out demons from a young boy. These were all recent events, <clears throat> and they couldn't keep their admiration and appreciation for who Jesus was inside any longer. They wanted to tell others and express to Jesus their worship. So we personally, right now, today, have not necessarily, we have not witnessed um, firsthand God's healing um, or Jesus' healing like that, but we can read about his power, and we can see that in his word. We have experienced firsthand his care for us individually, and we have the prophetic word, which is 
confirmed and sure, which is the Bible, available to us. In 2 Peter 1, Peter says that we need to pay attention to this confirmed, sure word, like we would pay attention to a shining lamp if we were in a dark place. So we need this word to shed light on our lives in this dark world until the day dawns when Jesus returns. So when we shepherd our hearts with God's word in this way, we're going to be ready to worship him like these disciples and the people in the crowd did. They were in awe of him, and they knew that he deserved praise, so they spoke out. And when we shepherd our hearts to God with his word, we will also be ready to speak out and to worship him in our daily lives. All right, I'm going to read Discipline 2 and Discipline 3 together, and we'll look at something else in Luke 19, so you can stay there. Discipline 2, the home, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And then Discipline 2 is about ministry, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful <clears throat> woman of God shepherd, or steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So when we, I'm going to combine these two. When we think about ministry in our homes or think about ministry in the church, we need to see every opportunity to serve every resource that we have to manage, every task that we have to complete as a gift from God. So the people in our homes are gifts. Um, they don't ultimately belong to us. Our house, our apartment, our clothing, any other physical item that we have that we need to take care of, those are ultimately not ours. They're on loan to us from God. Even ministry opportunities are gifts from God. The ability to pick up babies, to teach preschoolers, to meet with high schoolers or to be part of a small group of women who share their growth and share their sin, that ability to take part in that is a gift from God. And we are stewards. Luke 19 also speaks to disciplines 2 and 3. And so I'll read, and you can read along with me, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over 10 cities. The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are, an, you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And we'll just stop there. So the master had given each of his slaves the exact same amount of money, um, and they were to be faithful with it. Um, when he 
the point doesn't seem to be the extent or the amount of gain that came after the slaves used what he had given to them. It seems that the point is faithfulness based on what Jesus, or not Jesus, based on what the um, nobleman said to the first slave um, when he said, I, you know, here's my one mina, now there's 10 of them. Um, he said, well done, you have been faithful in a very little thing. So the point of the parable is faithfulness while Jesus is gone and we are still living here on earth waiting for his return. The parable was told by Jesus because he knew his disciples and he knew the people in the crowd thought, once we get into Jerusalem, like his kingdom, like everything's about to happen, it's coming now. And Jesus wanted them to know, actually, in the time that it's not yet, um, you need to be faithful with what I've given you to do. Just be faithful until I return. So I thought that was encouraging as we think about our ministry in the home and our ministry at church, um, just to be faithful with God, what, what God has given us to do, to be wise with it. Um, God's entrusted it to us, and we are his stewards in both of those realms. All right, so that is our review um, for the disciplines. Jacob is coming, and he's teaching. He has taught this lesson really since the beginning of Wellspring, um, teaching on our theme verse. I think probably most of you guys know Jacob. If there's any of you that are newer, I will just give you a little bit of information about him. He and his wife, Kiki, have um, been in our church since the beginning, so 20 years ago, and they have three children, Eliana, David, and Andrew, and Jacob has done, Jacob's very young, but he has done a lot with his life. He's done a lot of different things, and when I think of Jacob, I think of, I think he was 27, maybe, when I, when we came, and um, he was our realtor. He helped us find a house here, so that was one of the jobs from the past. I think he's like sold furniture and translated languages onto mp3s for people in Mexico <laughs> lots of different fun things but now he's a nurse anesthetist among being a, along with being a pastor so anyway he's coming up I know we will enjoy this message thank you let me grab the note sheet real fast so I can see what Sorry for my outfit. I got called in to an emergency surgery this morning and was praying I would get done in time, and I did. Oh, so yeah. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, so, like Janet said, my name is Jacob Hantla. I am um, one of the pastor elders here, and it is my joy to open up God's Word uh, with you this morning. So open up your Bibles to Proverbs 4.23 if you're not already there. And while you do that, let me pray. <clears throat> God, I, I beg that as we have your word open in front of us, as I speak and seek to expose the truth of your word, uh, please guard and guide my words. I, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Cause us to worship you. I pray that you would grant understanding by your spirit and Holy Spirit, grant my heart and the heart, hearts of my hearers here a submissive posture before you as we approach your word. May we not grow comfortable with truths that are familiar. I pray that you would bring these truths contained in scripture with the same power that when you spoke brought everything into existence. <clears throat> 
Your words are more powerful than we can comprehend. Your word brought all into existence. Your word and your word alone can bring life. I beg that my words would be faithful to your words. Um, God, I pray that you'd use this message first and most in my own heart and in the heart of my hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. So Proverbs 4.23 is a simple verse. I know you know it. If you don't, you certainly will by the end of today. It's on the upper right hand of all your note sheets. It's on your binder. It's in the Bible. It's above all else. Guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. There's three parts to this verse. That's going to be the outline for the sermon this, or for the, the message this morning. It's easy to remember. There's a what, a how, and a why. All right, so let's look down and see if you can identify those with me. The what is the command of the verse. That command is simple. It's guard your heart. Then there's a how. How is that command to be um, carried out above all else? Um, other versions say with all vigilance or with all diligence. And then finally, there's a why. Why is this command to be carried out above all else? Well, it's because the heart is the source of life. It's the wellspring of life. It's the source from which all of life flows. That's the, the meaning of the word wellspring, the meaning, what you should be reminded every week when you consider what we're coming here to do in wellspring. It's preparing you, equipping you to guard your heart with all diligence because all of your life flows from your heart, that most inner you. So why? Let's, let's start this morning with looking at the why. Um, of the command. The heart is the well or the source from which all other behaviors spring. So let's dig into what that means and some of the implications. Um, so this is, you can flip over to the back of, of page, of back of the first page, page two. Before we go there, I, I just want to have you think about your own life. Have you ever sinned and thought, where did that come from? Right? But, almost feel like what came out of you was foreign to you like that's not me is it maybe exploding at your roommates or a short temper with your husband anger at your children entertaining or acting on sinful fantasies laziness lying gossip sharp speech where did that come from you you know the answer don't skip over the implications of that answer that that sin or even the good that you do everything that you do came from the most inner you the heart the wellspring of your life and so proverbs 4:23 will help us get to the root of these sins or the root of holiness making sure that you don't play leapfrog over your heart see the christian life is not must not be about Let's make the outside look good. Let's make my actions 
merely look good while we skip over the source. You're going to see God certainly doesn't do that. The gospel, the good news that saves us, brings us, reconciles us to God for all of eternity here and now. While we're still in this mixed condition, it gets to the very root of the problem, our hearts, and renews our heart. And that's what we're going to go into today. But before we can get to the good news, we got to get to the bad news. Um, and, man, this is it's profound. The Solomon gives this profound illustration of, your, of, our, of our lives that if everything comes from the wellspring... The implications of that are that no part of the way that you live doesn't flow from your heart, right? There's nothing that you do that you say, oh, that came from somewhere other than my heart. And there's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. So the character of your life reveals the nature of your heart. The image is of a city's vital water source. If you have pure water at the source, everyone in the city will have pure water, right? But if the source is contaminated, you have no hope for pure water. And that's a, a problem because the Bible describes our natural heart, our light source, in some pretty unflattering terms. You see that at the top of page two, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick who can understand it all right so if the heart is the wellspring of your life and the heart is deceitful and desperately sick what are you going to expect comes out of that you, you see something similar and even maybe more condemning we heard about this the last two sundays with zach from genesis 6 5 Turn there in your Bibles. Genesis 6, chapter 5. Consider that God saw the wickedness in man's heart. This is before the flood, after the fall. And he was moved to kill everybody but Noah and his family by grace. His, God's assessment of the human heart is that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. And the flood did not fix man's heart problem, right? You see that assessment, you see that continue after Noah, through Noah. The flood did not fix that problem, and that assessment of man's natural heart as only evil continually is just as true today as it was before the flood. So there is no part of your life that does not flow from this wellspring. And your natural wellspring is deceitful, desperately sick, and only evil continually. So based on Proverbs 4.23, if we do some math, you see that, maybe, maybe I'm weird in my, my thinking, but you say if, if a deceitful, only evil heart is added to the statement, the heart is the source of all life, what do you expect the natural human life to look like? You see that in Romans 3, 10 through 12, quoting Psalm 14, 1 through 3. It's exactly what you would expect if those two statements were true. It's that none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. There is no exception to that rule except for Jesus Christ because his wellspring was not sick. He, he was righteous from the very core. You saw that expressed in his life. Thanks be to God that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. Righteousness does not come naturally from us. It cannot because our wellspring, our hearts, ever since Adam, are only evil continually apart from the new birth. This is our natural hearts. So we, we would expect this assessment of all of humanity. But remember, Christian, God does not leave the Christian in this condition. This is, this is the gospel. Turn to Ezekiel 36, 26 with me. This is speaking of the new covenant. This is a promise made to Israel, new covenant that Christian Gentiles get to enjoy as well. That description of Romans 3, 10 through 12, that's a description of the unregenerate man living in an unmixed, sinful condition. Now the Christian, we get a heart transplant. We now live in this mixed condition where for the first time we actually can glorify God from the heart. Let's look at um, what God says happens in Ezekiel 36, 26. His promise to Israel that we get to enjoy as well. He says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised Israel that he will someday give them a heart transplant. That will be their only hope for cleansing. This hasn't happened yet for all of Israel, but it is what God does when he saves us. And what vivid imagery this is. It's the only way that we can live righteous, right? The only hope when God says, you must be holy as I am holy. This is what he had to do to make that even possible. He had to change us from the heart. Now, I get to, if you haven't figured that out from my outfit and the introduction, I, I get to do anesthesia every day, and I'm, I'm specialized on the heart. This is especially vivid imagery to me. It, when the heart gets sick, something called cardiomyopathy, a, a really interesting aspect of that is that, that the heart tends to harden. It becomes a little bit like stone. You, you, normally the heart, when you put blood into it, it stretches. Which is why when you exercise, your heart actually gets bigger. The more blood comes in, it stretches, more blood pumps with every beat. You can keep, your heart can respond to the, the body's needs. When the heart gets sick, it gets sort of like stone. And, and you see the effects of that hardened heart, that stony heart, ha propagate throughout all the body. Kidneys start to die, your brain stops being sharp, your intestines aren't efficient at digesting you just your body's filled with death and apart from a heart transplant death will ensue um, and it's so amazing when you see a patient who 
was on the verge of death, he gets a heart transplant, and that same person looks new. Light, organs that were failing, mind that was sluggish, um, a body that, that was basically dead is renewed, but all that much more when we get a heart transplant that happens to us. Christian, you had an old dead heart of stone and God gave you. If you are a Christian, this is true of you. God gave you a new heart of flesh. He took out your old dead heart and he replaced it with a new one. Think of these other illustrations that God uses. John 3, 3, you were born again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation. Your mind has been renewed, we saw this morning, is continuing to be renewed. God has given you a new heart. At regeneration, God declared us righteous. And he changed us from the heart so that for the very first time you would have the ability to obey God and love God from the heart. Right? To tell your old self, hey, love God, is like going to a cemetery, looking at the graves, at the, the tombstone and saying to the dead body in the ground, hey, get up, walk around, live love God. You can't do anything. It, it's incapable. It's dead. It requires resurrection. It's like telling the, the old sick heart, hey, pump more blood. It can't. Your old heart cannot love God, cannot honor God, cannot glorify God. So apart from a heart transplant, we are helpless, hopeless to live a righteous life. God not only declared us righteous in the gospel, he gave us the ability to live holy lives with this heart, changed heart. Open to Romans 6, 17. We used to be slaves to sin. Why? Because our heart was sinful. We used to be disobedient from the heart. But Romans 6, 17 tells us what God has done. And it appropriately begins with thanks be to God. If you're not worshiping God in your heart as you hear this right now, repent of that and start. Do not let yourself read glorious truths in the gospel and be or in the Bible and be unaffected. Don't get into that, that trap of always looking for something new or saying, yeah, I know that. Let me move on. When we hear this, even if this is your 10,000th time hearing it, thanks be to God and worship him now for that. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. You are no longer a slave to sin. You no longer are disobedient in a slavish way, as if that is all that you can do. You are now in a mixed condition. You have been changed from the heart. So you, have be, you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
having been set free from sin, what are you a slave to now? You have become slaves to righteousness. John Flavel, who wrote an awesome book on Proverbs 4.23, he said it well. He said, the heart of man is his worst part before salvation. It's his best part after it. This does not mean that your heart is sinless. This does not mean that you are sinless. But when you think about the mixed condition, and you're aware of indwelling sin, and we fight it diligently, don't miss the point that it's been made new. You've been changed from the heart, and thanks be to God for that truth. Familiarity can rob us with the oppor- from the opportunity to worship. I'm going to say it again. We are oftentimes not thankful for the things that we're familiar with. Um, I'm great. I'm so grateful for cancer in my life, um, in the life of my son. This it, 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 things that I used to just take for granted. Just through testing, God's reminded me to be thankful for. The day-to-day, and even still, I'm a work in progress on that. Don't miss the opportunity to be thankful for little things. And so much more, don't miss the opportunity to be thankful for the big things, the most important things like God changing you from the heart, declaring you righteous, reconciling him to yourself. I heard it said, and I'm not sure if John MacArthur came up with this or he just said it most memorably to me, but... He said the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Before this glorious truth of the gospel, fight today and every day that your heart would be soft. Mm -hmm. Worship him, not hardened under these kinds of truths like the Pharisees were, like hypocrites were, are that your heart would be soft wax, melting before the radiance of the gospel instead of clay that would be hardened by familiarity. So if Proverbs 4.23 tells us that the heart is the wellspring of our lives, that would be horrible news if it were not for the gospel, right? That when God saves us, he changes us from the heart. And if you're a Christian, you've been changed from the very core of who you are. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, this is at the bottom of page 2, wisely advised his church. He said, till the spirit has regenerated the soul, all outward religion will be but a dead and pitiful thing. To make up a religion of doing or saying something that is good while the heart is void of the spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace is the hypocrite's religion. We are seeking to avoid at all costs a hypocrite's religion in our following of Christ. Right? He made it possible that we would not be hypocrites. Right? Apart from this renewing of the heart, any efforts at self-improvement are that. That you're just cleaning the outside while the while the inside is, is rotten to the core. God instead, at the very start of your Christian walk, He renewed you from the heart. And that tells us why. This command to guard your heart is done in what way? With all diligence, with all vigilance. 
right? Charles Spurgeon said, this is at the top of page three. He said, the poison of the soul is only sin. And this is like to poison in many respects. Poison, wherever it enters, it stays not here, but diffuses itself all over the body and it doesn't cease until it is infected all. Such is the nature of sin. Enter where it will, it creeps from one member of the body to another and from the body to the soul till it has infected the whole man and then from man to man till the whole family. Do you see D1, D2, D3? Grace Bible Church didn't invent this. It's all over God's word. Spurgeon's <laughs> teaching it right here without saying it. Uh, the sin that goes into your own heart, it doesn't, it's not content to stay with you. It goes and ruins your family and then goes and ruins the town threatens the church until it has poisoned a whole town and so a whole country, a whole kingdom. Woeful experience proves this true. Christian, your heart is precious, not only because it's the source of, from which all your life flows, but because it's made new through the gospel. Imagine a city with a poisoned well. Let's take that, that illustration from Proverbs and, and what Spurgeon says. Imagine a city with a poisoned well, right? All the water in the city comes from this well. There's poison in it. What would you expect the nature of the city to be? Sick, sickly, full of death. And then one day, a king comes, provides clean water, a new wellspring. The old well that was, their old well was full of poison, and the new one for the first time has fresh, clean water. Those who were once made weak, anemic, dying from the poison, now had a taste that apart from the provision of the new king, they a taste of something they never could have had. Pure water. Life-giving water. Those people would know the importance of that wellspring. Right? Better than anybody who only knew pure water. When you start with death and then you have a new pure water source those people will know the effects of a tainted well and they're going to know the joy of purity do you know what those people would never think or ought to never think i wonder how much how much poison i could let back into this water and still be okay no they would guard that wellspring with all vigilance because they would know that their very lives depended on it. Christian, we are those people. Our hearts were unmixed in their sinfulness, and at salvation, for the first time, you could glorify God and not sin from the heart. Guard your heart. And like Spurgeon says, the, the poison that you're guarding your heart from is sin. Why? Because you know that that sin will seek to destroy you from the heart, and it will not be content to stay there, but it will seek to destroy your family, your ministry, your church, and we're going to see other illustrations of just how dramatic the effects of sin on a heart, family, and even a whole kingdom could be. But let me ask you now, and, and don't just think generally about this, I want you to think specifically, maybe even write it down, and if you have um, whether it's your spouse or somebody in your small group or your care group, share this with them. I'm going to ask you a question. What poison 
are you dabbling with? Maybe even not running headlong into sin, but what poison are you dabbling with? Remember purity. Long for it. Don't stop at anything to guard your well. For the sake of your life, for the sake of your home and your church, guard your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life. So notice with me that as Solomon is speaking to his son, he gives this instruction as a command. Guard is imperative. Right? It's the same word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe an alert sentry in a watchtower. It's what you naturally would want to do based on that illustration as you think of what sin you might be dabbling with. I hope that your response is, well, I need to set up safeguards. I need to guard my heart. Above all else, you need to guard your heart, but, but you need to guard your heart. Don't be passive about this. This isn't like setting a security system, set it and forget it. This is somebody's job. There would be alert sentries on the mountainside in towers saying there are enemies who are coming to poison our water. If they do that successfully, our, nation, our city is dead. Uh, so we need to actually have people as a country, right? King Solomon would have known this. We need to have military here out, always on guard, guarding our water source. Um, Christian, we have to do that, right? Your residual sin within, temptations without, Satan is... It's like a lion always seeking to destroy you. He would love to do that by um, making you compromise on this wellspring, let sin in. So you naturally then, I, I naturally ask the question at this point when I was preparing this, I'm like, so... All right, I, I know the importance of guarding my wellspring, right? I know that all of my life flows from this wellspring. I know God has made it new. Man, I must, I must guard it. How? Are we just left to ourselves to figure out the how? I mean, there's some good ways that we all know, right? Accountability groups. We know that it's, we, we could come up with lots of, of ways that you guard your heart, right? Filters on your internet. Close accountability. Uh, don't go to places that you know you tend to sin. Stay away from those things. Um, don't just, I mean, from Hebrews 12, I, I taught about this recently from, from communion. Lay aside. Throw aside all things that, all encumbrances, whether they're sinful or not. Anything that stops you from pursuing the Lord, running this race unencumbered. You know, the, I could go out, I could t teach about that for hours. I'm not going to. But I asked the question, how? How do I guard my heart? And one verse stood out to me above all others. And it's Psalm 119, verse 9. Um, in essence, David asked, it's at the bottom of page 3, you can take notes above that. In essence, David, Solomon's dad, man after God's own heart, 
asks this exact same question. How am I going to guard my heart? He asks it in slightly different terms, but he, he said, how can a young man keep his way pure? And we already laid the groundwork. We know that is the exact same question. How do I guard my heart? How is my way going to be pure? Well, that's, that can't be apart from guarding this purity of heart because your way comes from your heart. Your heart's the wellspring of all life. But how can a young man keep his way pure? I guess before we go on, how would you answer that question? How, how, how are you going to keep your way pure? How did David answer it? By guarding it, my way flowing from my heart, according to your word. Okay, good. So God's word is at the heart of this. In what way? With my whole heart, I seek you, God. Let me not wander from your commandments. Do you see it? As you guard your heart, you will be protecting it from evil, right? Not wandering from his commandments. Clearly a part of guarding your heart, guarding your way, is not sinning, right? Don't knowingly disobey God. Is that, is that sufficient? That's not where David goes first. It must be included in the answer. Flee, flee from sin. Don't sin. But more fundamental and more important and really the the fuel that will enable this not wandering from your commandments is that first uh, the statement with my whole heart i seek you more fun importantly and more fundamental to the guarding of of your heart isn't just what you keep out of it but what you keep in it Seek God with all your heart. When you hear God guard your heart, shepherd your heart, I want you to immediately, first and most, say, seek God with all my heart. That must, those things must be interrelated. So often we think, guard my heart, I need to keep sin out. Yes, <laughs> don't skip that either. But sometimes we can be so focused on, I need to keep sin out, that we miss this more fundamental and even more important truth of seeking God with all of our heart. It's more, more fundamentally what you keep in. I don't have time, but, but you may remember the, the parable that Jesus gave about the casting the demons out, the man put his house in order, and then demon went and got more of his friends and came back because the house was still empty. I believe this is what that's talking about. You may want to go there on your own. I'm not going to be able to do that because of time, but that is, that truth is taught there. But I want to go to, to another spot in the New Testament where I think this is taught very vividly. Turn to 1 John 3, 2 through 3. So as we guard the wellspring of our hearts, we must be shepherding our heart to the word of God to get the God of the word. 1 John 3, 2 through 3. In guarding your heart, make sure that you're not shepherding it to pharisaical behavior-focused religion, that you're not merely focusing on avoiding sin, 
though you must be doing that, but that you are seeking God in the gospel. I want to look at the New Testament ultimate illustration to David's heart purifying, God seeking in Psalm 119, verse 9. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Before we go on, in what we will be has not yet appeared. You might, you might actually resonate really well with this first, first clause. Because you hear me talking about God's made you new from the heart. The heart is the best part of you after conversion. Whereas before you could only sin because your heart was only evil continually. Now your heart's been made new. You're slaves to righteousness. And you hear that and you say, why am I still sinning? I, I know this to be true. And sometimes it I just can't wait till I'm glorified. I, I, I want to be done with this residual sin. I, it would be so wonderful if I don't have to guard my heart from myself. If, if once I am in this unmixed holy condition, oh, I can't wait. That's, that's true. That's right. And it's also right that we are in this condition now. Um, God certainly could have made it one fell swoop, skipped this sanctification bit, and glorified us. And John encourages you, you are God's children now. But what we will be hasn't yet appeared. And it's, you have been made pure from the heart, but it's not done. How, how's it going to be accomplished completely? What's God's means of completing the work that was begun at regeneration. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? How? Because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, God has changed you. He has even made you his child. He's, this change of nature, although drastic, isn't yet complete. What we will be hasn't yet appeared. One day, we will see God as he is. And in a moment, you will be made to look completely like him. The flesh that so easily entangles, which is so easily contaminated, will be removed. And you will be pure, even as God is pure. So what's the connection to Psalm 119? This passage doesn't merely make us give up hope of purity now and wait for that day. No, I think this passage gives us hope that we are God's children now and purification is possible. So let me ask you the question, how will purity come on the day when Jesus returns? You're going to see God as he is. And what's sweet is that means of glorification isn't dissimilar from our means of sanctification now. Um, we are... How does a young man keep his way pure? By seeking God, by setting where God, according to his word, where God is most clearly revealed to us now. Where do you see God most clearly? One day you're going to just see him as he is, and you're going to be made pure. Where do we see God most clearly now? In his word. And how is a young man going to keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So as David keeps his way pure by seeking God in his word, the New Testament Christian is to hope on God, fixing the gaze of his heart on him as we look for him revealed in his word. Do you get this? The means of pursuing and guarding purity is the same means of our ultimate heart purification. It's a pursuit of God by setting the gaze of our hearts and one day our eyes on him. Today that must be primarily in his word. One day it will be face to face. So do you see how important it is to flee sin and fix the gaze of your heart, hopefully on God and his word? So let me ask you, what do you do in the morning or whenever you open up God's word? It is easy to just say, here's my reading assignment for the day. I check it off and I'm done. Or maybe I'm looking for application. What must I do? That's not wrong. God's word must affect you. But even more fundamentally, what is God's word? It, it is the revelation of God to us. There are commands to be obeyed. There are admonitions to be heard. There are warnings to be heeded. But there's a God revealed in and through all of that. So no matter where you are, I would encourage you, ask the question every single day when you open up God's word. What does this reveal about God? And then how must this affect me? You see how that works anywhere in God's word, right? Whether, whether you're reading somebody else's mail, you're reading some, something written to Israel and you're like, this isn't even for me. Well, that's okay. It, it's still, it's, it reveals something about your God. How must that affect you? Or just anywhere throughout the New Testament, anywhere in God's word, if you ask that question and you don't get up out of your seat, until you've answered it. And maybe even write it down. Text the answer to your spouse or somebody in your small group. I've done that for, for years with different people and they're like, help me with God, help me study God's word. And I said, here's what we're gonna do. Every day, you text me what you read or what, what you read that, or what, how God was revealed in what you read this morning, what you learned and how it must affect you. Write it in one sentence. It's crazy how that sticks with you. And if you write that day after day, year after year, decade after decade, um, that's a good way to keep your way pure, to guard your heart. And you will see incredible growth, incredible encouragement all throughout all of God's word if you do that. Um, your kids can do that. That's an easy question to ask with your kids. We read God's word every day as a family. And the, the only question that I ask every day is, what does this text teach us about God? Okay, how must that affect us? Sometimes it's the exact same answer every single day. And that's okay, we already talked about that. Don't let familiarity rob you of worship. Um, sometimes there's some new sweet things and when you see the same truths taught in a thousand different ways across all of scripture um, 
is incredibly encouraging, incredibly helpful. And it is God's means. It is a, one of God's very important means for helping you guard your heart. So how must we do this? How must we guard our heart? Right? We, we've covered the, the why, well, our heart's the wellspring. We've covered the what, the command, guard your heart. Now how? How do we do it? With all the vigilance, with all diligence, above all else. Um, so we have a new heart with new love and new affect, affection for God, right? But the flesh within, Satan and temptations without are constantly assaulting the heart, seeking to taint it with sin. So you must guard your heart above all else. All the time, every day, no higher priorities, no days off. You do anything with more attention than you give to guarding your heart. The answer to God's word must be no, right? If, if you do something above all else or with all diligence, there can't be anything else that you are more diligent about than this. There can't be anything else that you give more attention to than this. That doesn't mean that you, or that must mean that you, you don't say, oh, I, I guarded my heart for 20 minutes in the morning when I read God's word, and I'm going to let that heart guarding uh, hold tide me through like you set your alarm when you leave the house in the morning. That, that's not how this works. That time in the morning certainly is necessary and helps. But what about when you have break at lunch and you pull out your phone and you're choosing where your thumb, which is an amazing connection to your heart, your thumb on your phone, what app do you launch? What do you do? Um, when you have a few minutes to daydream, when you're having a conversation with a friend, when your kids really frustrate you, your spouse does that thing that annoys you, and say, whoa, that response, that reveals something about my heart. I gotta get to the heart of that. Uh, how do I do that? Seek God. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Um, anyway, I, I can keep going. We're running out of time. But let me just say this isn't a suggestion. It must not be something good to do in addition to all the other things that you do. It must be the most important thing that you do in your life. And it's not a one-time task. It must permeate all that you do in your life. Which means that there's no entertainment choice that is not a part of this. There is no technology use that's not a part of this. There's no parenting technique, marriage tool. There is no anything that you do. Life improvement, there's nothing that you do in your life that must not have, or that, that could have anything other than heart shepherding, heart guarding at the very core of it. So as we think about the need to diligently guard our hearts, I want to soberingly, humbly consider the one who wrote the book of Proverbs. And you're going to see this at the top of page 4. You can turn there, 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Consider the one who wrote the book of Proverbs in this command. It was Solomon, right? 
Surely he knew that if a life is to be pure and holy unto God, the source had to be pure as well. Um, he was probably around when David wrote Psalm 119, verse 9. He got to hang out with the king, the man after God's own heart. He asked for wisdom. He wrote this passage and many others. Um, he started well. He was probably very convinced of the necessity of heart guarding. He could use heart guarding language. He wrote the heart guarding language. But being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding is not sufficient. Using the language of wellspring, speaking the lingo, doing the things isn't sufficient agreeing with Solomon and God's word about this verse doesn't automatically mean that you're doing it. Being excited about this doesn't mean that you're doing it. Being able to teach it doesn't mean I'm doing it. Consider Solomon with me and read in 1 Kings. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God, as the heart of David his father had been. David sought God with his whole heart. Not perfectly, but that was the mark of his life. And Solomon, through a series of heart-poisoning compromises, despite a great start, had his heart turned away. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. At the start, if you said, Solomon, do you think you're going to be able to handle um, 300 concubines and 700 wives? And most of them are going to be from the people with which God said you shouldn't marry? Do you think that would be okay? I'm pretty sure he would have said no. Um, but if you read 1 Kings, it's actually a really helpful tool. Start in 1 Kings chapter 1 and just look at the compromises. And if you pair that with God's command in Deuteronomy to what the kings are supposed to do, it's almost like an outline of, hey, don't go to Egypt and get horses. Don't accumulate a lot of wealth for yourself. Certainly don't marry all the foreign women. They're going to turn your heart away. Every single one of them, starting slow and ramping up. A series of heart-poisoning compromises. Solomon's heart was turned away. Consider the horrible effects. Not only we, we saw heart compromise uh, led his heart astray. What happened to his home? You might remember what his kid did. 
split the nation. So the effect, right, turned away from God, split the nation. Within generations, uh, the northern kingdom was in exile. Just a few generations later, southern kingdom too. Uh, God's people were characterized by anything but a seeking of God. Heart compromises were not content to stay at D1. Poured over rapidly into two, three, even this whole kingdom. Your heart compromises won't stay there either. The great thing is your heart guarding won't merely affect you either. Right? It will pour over. Whichever way you go, pour over into your home. And the church will either be harmed or greatly blessed. Solomon knew Proverbs 4.23 better than us. He wrote it. Guarding your heart is much more than knowing the command. Christian, just remember, God has given you a new heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He commands you and enables you to guard your heart. And you must do this above all else. No days off. No higher priorities. It's a lifelong faithful process. Yesterday's success at guarding your heart doesn't guarantee tomorrow's. Let me encourage you, yesterday's failure doesn't keep you from tomorrow's success either. Right now, if, if you look at this and you say, you see sin, you see failure, what do we do? Confess it. Right? If, if you look at this and say, shoot, I haven't been guarding my heart, I need to make sure nobody sees that. I need to get my act together. And if that getting your act together is anything other than confessing your from your heart disobedience and asking God for help from the heart, um, you're going to miss the mark. But if, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all, from all unrighteousness. The mark of a Christian is that when you see sin, you, you confess it. You turn from it. And God's already given you the, the power that you need to follow him from the heart. So be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. But don't let conviction of sin or warning bells, alarms going off, go unheeded. If, there's, if this sets off alarms for you and you say, wow, I am letting poison into my well, this is something I'm not doing above all else. That needs to change now. And so involve the other women in this room. Involve the women in your small group. Involve your spouse, somebody. Um, but most importantly, involve the Lord. Pursue him with your whole heart. Seek him with your whole heart through his word. So let me ask you a question. These are the water purity checks on the middle of page four. This is really what we do in core questions, right? You, you, you look for, a, a Christian would expect holiness to be coming out of their life. What are the, the normal things that a Christian would, would be doing when the Holy Spirit is active in him or her and you're pursuing God according to his word? Well, you're going to be um, reading his word, learning, being affected. You're going to be evangelizing. 
you're going to be praying and seeing answers to those the, those prayers. And you're going to be seeking out sin and confessing it. Here's some other questions to help you see what's flowing from your heart. Do you usually sense a presence or absence of affection for God? If so, give God the glory because you know that there's only one place that could be coming from, your new heart. And if not, what must repentance deal with? Your, your heart. Do you have an appetite for God's word? Are you daily shepherding your heart to God in his word? These are all fruits of and means of heart guarding. Do your daily routines, including entertainment choices, internet use, free time priorities, etc., reflect that you're guarding your heart above all else? How do your prayers reflect the vigilance with which you guard your heart? What lures your heart away from God? How diligently do you flee these? And you probably know, you can't know your heart perfectly. God's word will help you. But you probably know some other questions that, man, when you're starting to compromise or when you're really starting to pursue holiness, this is an area, this is like a, a bellwether, the canary in the coal mine that tells you, yeah, this is going well or it's not. Those questions are probably a little bit humiliating or incredibly encouraging, depending on how you look at them, right? Because they they're going to be your natural tendencies to sin. And, and we all have slightly different natural tendencies to sin. Um, I think that's actually what how psychology... Psychology is very poor at giving you a solution. right? But, but you might tend to be more depressed. I might tend to be more manic. right? I, when I'm not guarding my heart, I fly to ideas. I go crazy. right? Whatever. I know my kids. I know their tendencies to sin. I can fill in the blank for them. Psychology can't give you the solutions, but but when you look at your life and your natural, sorry, I shouldn't have gone. I didn't have enough time to go there. Um, so I'll just basically, you know, in your own life, where your tendencies will be, when you see yourself heart guarding or not. That's what I want you to fill in those questions. They probably seek to make them a little bit humiliating, a little bit too close to home. Not, not as a means of embarrassing you, but a means of actually getting past this facade that we can tend to be content with if we are content with hypocrites' religion. right? If we just want to clean the outside of the glass or like the Pharisees, make sure that our tombs that are full of dead men's bones are clean and white on the outside. You're not going to, if that's what you want to do, you're not going to ask questions that get to the heart. But if, for me, it's, what apps do I launch on my smartphone first thing in the morning? Other ones for me are just this overall discipline of life. Do I hit snooze in the morning? When I go to bed and I'm clear-headed, and I say, I need to get up at this time so that I have ample time to get into God's word and discipline my body and get my mind clear before I start my day. And then I wake up in the morning and all of a sudden an extra 30 minutes of sleep seems more important than guarding my heart. That to me is, is a really important marker of how well I'm guarding my heart overall. I could go into others, but those, those might be helpful to you and might be totally different. That's what I want you to put there. 
and make sure that you're sharing that not with everybody but but with the most important people who are going to help you guard your heart um and i am out of time so i'm going to skip the rest of this but let me just encourage you that in these questions if there's sin be diligent to confess it and just enjoy the forgiveness and power over sin that God grants. But also don't skip, if, if these, these questions ought to for the Christian, reveal maybe a mixed bag. Yeah, I'm not doing it perfectly. We're, we're God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. Don't forget, don't skip over giving God the glory and praising him for good answers here too. Right? Like if you say, well, yeah, no, I, I certainly don't, have an affection for God like I know I will when I'm in heaven and I see him face to face but do you know what I actually want to read God's word I love this I see fruit in my life when I read his word and I look back over my life I am more holy today than I was last year and five years ago that there is no glory in that for me that is a hundred percent thanks be to God give glory to God don't skip that either because that's evidence that you've been made pure from your wellspring. Not that you made yourself pure, but that you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God has made you alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. Uh, you're a new creature. You've been born again. You who were once slaves to sin have become slaves to righteousness because you were changed from the heart. So in light of that new heart, let's resolve again to guard our hearts with all vigilance because from them flow the springs of life pray with me god thank you again for this reminder from your word for the clarity of your word and how we've gone to just a few passages but these truths are all over your word god thank you for your grace that you didn't leave us in our sinful deadness, hatred and rebellion against you, but that by your grace, not because we'd done anything good or there was anything attractive in us, but just by your grace so that your purposes in the election might stand, you've saved us. God, we have a taste of purity. We know you. We love you. I just pray that you would mark us out, each individually and together as a church, as people who guard our heart to you, through your word, for your glory. God, I pray that these times of uh, the small group discussion, that you would help them be, um, the women speak with clarity and honesty, that your Holy Spirit would be active um, as they seek to build one another up, encourage, help, admonish when necessary. Let's pray that you would be glorified in the next hour. God, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.